0: We've been studying the book of Revelation, and it is a challenging book, isn't it? And uh, uh, even though it's very challenging, we're commanded to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. So we want to experience God emotionally, but the, the emotion that we get uh, in our hearts from the word of God is first ignited by what we understand in our minds. So we have to work to understand God's word. The Holy Spirit helps us, but our will through the engagement of our intellect matters. So how do you love the Lord your God with your mind during an intellectually challenging teaching? First off, I will say that you don't have to be an intellectual. That's a subjective term. We don't need to define it, but you don't have to be an intellectual. Intellectual. Okay, you don't have to love ancient literature or, you know, be an expert on uh, Russian literature or whatever. Uh, Really, you don't have to be an intellectual, but you have to engage God intellectually. Sometimes we soak up the word like we're just laying in the sun and whatever hits us, hits us, but we're really called to engage at a deeper level. So we pray for self and for others to understand it while we're listening to a message, especially a challenging message. Uh, we don't opt out saying this isn't for me. We don't check out thinking about tomorrow or next week or how sleepy we are or whatever. And we uh, don't space out, which is what we're really good at doing in our culture, aren't we? We're very good, myself especially, good at checking out. But instead we engage in a very active way to do that is to pray for understanding, to pray for me, to pray for all of us here that we would understand and apply God's word Also, don't get discouraged. Don't get discouraged if you don't understand it all. I certainly do not understand the entire book of Revelation. There are massive pieces of this book I don't understand. But we can get the big picture. It's actually the easiest book in the entire Bible to get the overall big picture. And I'll give you a little cheat sheet here. It's two words. That's what it is, the overall theme of Revelation. Jesus wins. You're the pastor's wife. You're not allowed to give answers. Jesus wins. That's it. Jesus wins. And we look at the uh, uh, painfully, painfully vivid pictures of God's judgment on sin, and we look at how bad things will get, and we're reminded that Jesus wins. So we need to be connected to that. Now, as we've gone through this uh, uh, this book, we've seen that in chapter one, we get a picture of Jesus, then in pack, uh, In chapters two and three, exhortations are given to various churches by Jesus in light of his holiness, his holiness booing booing them in the midst of their trials. They were facing loss of life, family, uh, employment, and torture for their faith, for not bowing down to the emperor in worship and not bowing down to their various uh, guild tradesmen gods that we spoke of last week. They were called to live boldly. And to profess Christ even in the midst of crippling persecution. Now in chapter five, 4 and 5, we're going to be given a picture of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We're given a picture namely of God's holiness and the characteristics that line up therein to that attribute of God. And then from 4 and 5, we go to 6, where we look at the implications of this holy God for ones who are not submitted to Christ Jesus. And then in chapter 7, the implications of a holy God for those who love and follow and submit to the Lord. Uh, so, we are going to read, cha- I said we're going to have to read a lot of the book in order to get through it in the, uh, the number of weeks that we have for this series. So, because I can't read all of this without losing my voice i want. y'all read pieces of it after you're done. But go ahead and get out your Bible, your phone or your Bible. Turn to the very end of your Bible to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. For time's sake, because we're running a little bit behind, I was thinking about reading it. But I'm going to have you read this whole section on your own chapter four through seven. Chapters four through seven. So read chapter four, five, six, and seven on your own, and then we'll dig up uh, some pieces of that section together after you're done. So Lord, help us to work hard, to think, to not space out, but to give ourselves to the study of your word as we read. Help us, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. May the Holy Spirit help us understand these words. more moments here. right. If you weren't reading quickly, now's the time. Some of you uh, are breaking out the commentaries, looking at the Greek. You don't have time to do all that. Just go ahead and read through it, get a bird's eye view. Lord, we thank you for your word that in your grace you've told us what will happen in the end. You've shown us a Lord and Savior who is not the meek little baby that we saw enter in. But you are the warrior. You are the one who will make all things right. You will, are the one who will judge the living and the dead. And we see that picture of you tonight, Lord, and I pray that those here who don't know you, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would move them to see the beauty and the power and the majesty of grace of our King. Lord, for those of us who do know you, may this, these words from this letter move us to obey you and proclaim your name regardless of the cost. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look at chapter 4, verse 1, and unpack this section. It says, after this I looked, this is John speaking, the author, after this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I'll show you what must soon take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning. Rumblings and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also, in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around. And under its wings, day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So part of the picture of God's holiness that we read in chapters 4 and 5 is that God is surrounding, surrounded by unending praise. That means that at this moment, these heavenly hosts that we're reading about, which would be terrifying, by the way, absolutely terrifying. It would probably give us a heart attack right now if we could see them. That these, without getting into the details of all these, they are worshiping Jesus right now in his presence. We'd be unable to stand in such glory until God renews our, bodies when, renews our bodies when Jesus comes back. Our worship on Sunday nights is an earthly expression of this reality. And man, this should be like jet fuel thrown on our hearts when we worship. Man, if if you're putting your hands in your pockets and you feel dull and lifeless when you worship, or for you guys especially, if you think worship is for pansies and cowards and weak-minded men, why don't you say that to these creatures that we see in Revelation? To worship the living God is the the most satisfying, glorious, glorious, fulfilling thing we can possibly do on this side of eternity or the other. Nothing else even comes close. So we fall on our faces in worship, knowing that we're not alone. This should give us perspective not only for all of eternity, but for our current struggles and trials, that one day all of our struggles and trials will pale in comparison and will melt in the glory of God that we read about in this book. We also see as part of his holiness that God is seated in glory in this section, The number of God is pictured as holy symbolically. We see all these sevens come out, like the seven spirits of God, recognizing that he is perfection. The sea of glass represents his transcendence so that we don't fall into the trap of thinking that God is in any way limited to a literal throne like what we read about. It's symbolic of the fact that he is in authority. He's over all and through all and in all and not limited to time or space. He's also all-powerful, all-powerful, In Revelation 4, verse 8, it says, Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. So, these creatures who he said, these heavenly hosts, who he said would give us a heart attack, they fall down before the glory of God because he's so majestic. He's the one who is, was, and is to come. He has no beginning and no end. He's also glorious overall, we read here as part of his holiness in the second part of verse 10 in chapter 4. It says, they lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. He's worthy to receive glory because nothing exists outside of him. We, our hearts beat because he gives them rhythm. The sun comes up and the moon comes out at night because he sets them there. He is in, through, and over all. He's sovereign over all things. And we see some specifics of that sovereignty in chapter 5, verse 1. It says, then I, again, this is John, saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. We can't go into all the details of these scrolls, but they contained the four ordained wills or plans of God to eradicate evil, death, sin, and suffering through his coming kingdom to earth. It's going to come in the last days. So now we make a turn. In chapter 4, we've gotten a picture of God the Father is holy. Now we turn to God the Son. Jesus is holy. In chapter 5, verse 2, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice. Again, this would blow our eardrums out if we could hear it today. Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll and look inside. I mean, guys, think about this. John is weeping because there's no one who can execute the will of God, who can open these scrolls. And he's in the presence of all these heavenly hosts, these mighty beings that God created. And even though, even they are not worthy to open these scrolls. And John himself was inadequate as well, a giant of the faith. That's until Jesus enters the scene in verse five. It says, then one of the elders said to me, that's John, do not weep. See the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. So John is told weep no more because the the king has come the one prophesied about in Genesis 49 and Isaiah 11, who's called the root of David and the line of Judah, the fulfillment of the promise given to Abraham of a people belonging to God and a place where God's people could thrive, a kingdom where they would live, was foreshadowed through Abraham and David and many others in the Old Testament. And it's now right there in the flesh before John as the reigning and conquering king. But his kingship is depicted in a very curious way. We see here in Revelation 5, 6, many of you may not have thought of Jesus in these terms, at least as it relates to his reigning when he comes back. He says, Then I saw a lamb, looking as if he'd been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. So we see here is a picture of Jesus's holiness, that he is the conquering lion and the slaughtered lamb. Jesus was the conquering lion in that he defeated sin and death, and he rose on the third day and leaves us with the Holy Spirit to empower us to live this life for Christ. But we also see the slaughtered lamb, picturing Jesus, the one foreshadowed in the Passover hundreds of years prior, when God's people were told to paint the blood of a lamb without blemish or defect over the doorpost of their homes to avoid the plague that God sent on the Egyptians for their oppression of God's people. And the angel of death would pass over those homes that had the blood of the lamb painted over the doorpost and would enter into the homes of those who failed to do that and their firstborn would be killed as part of that plague. Those Old Testament saints surely didn't know that they were pointing towards the coming king sent to save us from separation from God, dying similarly as an innocent man for our sin. By his shed blood, we're forgiven and saved. So we see Ultimately, this prophecy fulfilled when Jesus died and rose again, but finally and fully fulfilled throughout all eternity as we read here. So think about this. We'll see Jesus's scars for all eternity. I don't know exactly how it's going to look, but we know that he's a man. Jesus is a man and he is God right now. Right now. Isn't that give you rest? Doesn't it give you comfort knowing you have one who intercedes for you with flesh? And in his flesh are the scars of his crucifixion. And we make no mistake, we will see him as the slaughtered lamb and the conquering king throughout all of eternity. Also notice that uh, our prayers matter here. I want you to hear this, especially those who are struggling or have something you're really burdened by. These prayers are symbolized as golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. This should give strength to our prayer lives because not one mumbling word spoken to the glory of God prayed for so that we might become more like him, prayed for so that we may gather strength in our times of suffering. Not one word is wasted, but it will give God glory for all of eternity. Somehow, I don't understand how, but from this passage, our prayers resonate and echo and bounce off the walls of heaven forever. Every word giving God glory. There's not one word spoken in his name that will ever die. God stores our prayers to honor him. We go on to see the surpassing value and holiness of King Jesus in verse 9. It says, And they, these heavenly hosts, these elders, they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priest, to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that's in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. So we see again here the holiness of Christ depicted in that the worth of the Son here is undisputed. It's undisputed. We see his work described as unforgettable, his worship as universal for all people of every race, language, and ethnicity. And we see, too, that his worship is eternal. On day 10 million, hear this, on day number 10 million that we spend in his presence, our sense of awe, fascination, fulfillment, peace will have not lost one millimeter of glory and strength and heart-exploding, mouth-dropping awe When compared to day one, in fact, I think it will glow brighter and brighter. This picture that some of us have that heaven is boring is a lie straight from the pit of hell. You're in the presence of perfect love, perfect joy. Every time you've laughed, every time you've celebrated a birthday, an anniversary, every time you've seen the the glory and miracle of childbirth, all of those things... If you were to take all of those good and great experiences that we have this side of heaven and take every single person's and wrap it up in one ball, it would not compare to one millisecond in the presence of this king. You notice we don't read of anyone's hands being in their pockets. No one is yawning or checking their watch. No one is distracted with text or Instagram in this scenario. The glory of God is too much and no one is in sin, but they're freed from it. There's nothing more interesting, nothing more life-giving, nothing more inspiring, nothing more gracious, nothing more peaceful than the presence of Christ. So I hope this brings you strength in this culture that is absolutely obsessed with self, that if we turn our eyes upon Jesus and look fully at his face, everything in this earth will grow strangely dim. Amen? Amen. We look to his glory. This book is not primarily to be interpreted with a bunch of charts and what are the various scorpions? Are those Apache helicopters? Or you know, is Jesus gonna come out with a supernatural machine gun and magazines? And it, you get all these just goofy pictures of revelation and people who major on the minors. No, the focus is get your eyes off of self, saints, and get your eyes on Jesus because that will empower you to share even if it costs you your life. That will empower you to share, even if it costs you your freedom. That will empower you to share, even if you look like an idiot in your class. That will empower you to share, even if you look foolish around the holidays with your family. We don't look to our own strength because, of course, we will fail. We'll either fail with pride or self-pity or lust or greed or you name it, and we'll fail to make much of Jesus. But when we look at him, He will make us fall on our face and lean on him. We keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. That is the point of this letter, not charts, not charts. Jesus wants our heart, not our charts. We wanna understand it, but let me just tell you, I've studied this book as much as anybody in this room, spent hundreds of hours studying this book. It is incredibly confusing. (laughs) The more I study it, the more respect I get for the various interpretations. So I'm giving you the bare bones. I'm giving you what I believe John wanted the original readers to understand and to get. The point of both of these chapters 4 and 5 is that God's glory compels us to salvation. That God's in control of the suffering these early believers faced. He's in control of the suffering that we face now. And he's in control of the suffering that the believers that are going to be alive when this comes true will face. When the tribulation comes and literally all hell breaks loose and their suffering will not be comparable to any uh, saint suffering throughout all of history up until that point, it will be far, far, far worse. And even then, Jesus will be more than enough. So sometimes we might need to take a time out and read these passages when we're making much of self and little of Jesus. This allows us to do the unthinkable just uh, not too long. Well, I guess college is a long time ago for me now. I was going to say not too long ago. I feel young sometimes. I feel young when I'm with you guys. A long time ago, (laughs) I uh, read about these two brothers in the Moravian church in the 18th century. And I can't remember where I read this exactly, but I did look it up, and it's true. Uh, But in the 18th century, who wanted to reach the slaves... So because of what was written in this letter, in the picture of the glory of Christ, they sold themselves into slavery. And they got on the ship as slaves to reach other slaves. And it's recorded that when they got on, they said, giving up our freedom for the glory of Christ is nothing compared to the freedom he imparts to me. That's what this book allows us to do. This is a picture of a holy God, and it has devastating implications for the non-believer and glorious ones for the Christ follower. So first we see the end of ones who reject the glory of Christ that we read about in chapter 4 and 5 in chapter 6. But now before we jump into these chapters, 6 and 7, uh, which will wrap up our night with these, you'll probably notice that the arrangement of Revelation seems to be cyclical and not chronological. What I mean by that is you read in one chapter, you read about all these judgments and it, it's cyclical and that it mounts, it mounts, and mounts. And then you read about peace and prosperity of God's people. And it looks like all's well, but you know, you still have a bunch of chapters left. And then it goes back over. It's not necessarily chronological. So that's why it's important to have a good commentary beside you. It's, it is intentional. In the way it's communicating. So when I say various things like, well, this chapter actually belongs to this chapter chronologically, I'm not saying that the author somehow made a mistake. The, the point is a cyclical up and down of how God provides for his people during suffering and what's in store for those who don't know Jesus. Uh, but, but I'll try to give you as tight of a chronology as I can. We're going to need to think to understand this, okay, as we get, dig into this. We're going to need to think, so hang with me. There are sobering implications for the person rejecting God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit described in chapters four and five, and they're important to the gospel because these horrific implications have been around since the beginning. Not following Jesus results in death, and that's the story from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end because death is simply life without God. He didn't create us to have life without him, and life without him results in death, Sin has devastating consequences. It brings addiction, selfishness, oppression. It dehumanizes and sexualizes. It makes things more important than people, and worst of all, it separates us from God. And we see the horror of the the cost of sin in chapter 6. So on to the implications for those not submitted to Jesus in the last days when Jesus comes back. First, God is ultimately sovereign over evil. It will appear in the end that Evil is winning. On the day of the Lord, when he comes back, it will appear like sin and evil are winning. But God's ultimately sovereign over evil. Because remember, chapter six is all about God's wrath for those who don't follow Jesus. And we also see examples where evil is allowed to touch Christians, but God's in control of it all. So Jesus is opening these seven seals and we see his sovereignty over evil in Revelation 6.2. Again, John speaking here. I looked and there before me was a white horse, its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Now, some view the rider of this white horse as Jesus because Jesus is depicted as riding a white horse elsewhere in scripture. Uh, there are many opinions on that. I personally don't believe that this is a depiction of Jesus because the other horses are bringing horrible wrath and some don't. some of these heavenly beings don't seem like they are from God but are rather being al- allowed by God as a force of evil to do God's will. And it's clear that Jesus is allowing these things to happen. You know, oftentimes we get symbols in Roman literature of uh, emperors riding in on a white horse with their captives in tow after a victory. So this would have been a a common illustration at the time of the writing of this book. We see another example in Revelation 6, verse four. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. Again, notice it says the Lord gave power to this heavenly being to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. The Lord gave it. The Lord is sovereign over all this because it's gonna appear like he's not. This evil in the last days will turn people against one another and it seems as if this murder will be irresistible for the non-believer. That hate will have boiled over so much That hearts will be hard to God and there'll be this this massive combat, this killing of, of people. Then in Revelation 6, 8, it says, I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. A fourth of the earth. That's a lot of people. Again, God gave them power to kill by sword, famine, and plague. So now we have humanity turning against humanity and famine and plagues. This is not going to be a happy place, okay? We see the words given or allowed many times in Revelation. Jesus is allowing this. Do you know why? Because it's it's the natural result of sin and choosing life without God. This is it. And in God's grace, he says, I want you to avoid this. This is what's coming. Sin is a big deal. The point here is that God's in control. Satan and his demons can't do anything without divine permission, and neither can these heavenly servants who execute God's judgment. And the permission is given by God, obviously, for a divine purpose. For saints to show the faithfulness of God, to allow saints to suffer that their suffering might proclaim the gospel louder than any words possibly could. And then those, for the, those who don't know, to, to stand as the strongest possible warning that God could ever give someone who doesn't know him. There is not a stronger possible warning he could give. Now, he said chapter 6 is about God's judgment on sin, that he allowed it, that God will judge sin, and this might be a tough pill for you to swallow. But let me just say, and I beg you with this, I, I don't mean this in a judgmental way, don't think that you can create God in your own image. What you think about God doesn't matter any more than what you think about the weather. You may say, Chris, I think it's going to be 90 degrees out there and sunny, that's not going to make it 90 degrees and sunny, is it? I wish it could. That would be kind of cool. But it can. Your opinion matters little when it comes to the character of a person, even less God. What matters is who is he? Who is God? And we're given a very clear picture of who God is in his word. And part of his character is that he'll allow sin to come to its full conclusion, which has always been death and destruction. It's what sin does and why God tries so desperately to rescue us from the very beginning of redemptive history, history that we read about in Genesis to the very end. The second implication for the non believer in the last days is God's people will appear to be victims, but they'll be victorious. In Revelation 6 9, it says, When he, that's Jesus, opened the fifth seal and saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained, they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. So those who had suffered for Christ and been martyred for him will cry out for God to judge the inhabitants of the earth. And we know from all of scripture that when that phrase is used, inhabitants of the earth, it's referring to non-believers, those who don't follow Jesus. So Jesus says, just wait until all those that I've called to suffer and die for me have done so, then I will come and judge the earth. It will surely appear like God's people are weak and to be pitied during this time to be pitied more than uh, the least of people. But make no mistake, just as Christ appeared to be a byline in history, just one more criminal condemned to death, he arose to be victorious, and so will God's people. We will share in his blessing, and there is special blessing for those who suffer in his name. The more you suffer, the more your eyes become like a microscope on Revelation, because it is designed by God to help you prevail, regardless of the suffering you face. Moving on to one more implication of God's glory for the non-believer in chapter six is a disclaimer. I'm not taking longer tonight. I started later than normal, okay? I just want that to be a Everyone's like, he went too long. No, I didn't go, someone else went long. I don't know who, but it wasn't me. Uh, so one more implication in chapter six. Man and woman are morally responsible for sin. When the original audience heard or read this section contained in chapter 6, let me tell you what, the the actual, uh, contextually, whether or not it's literal or figurative doesn't matter. What matters is there is some pretty stinking dark imagery used here for the consequences of sin, and that is what matters. It's going to be dark, it's going to be nasty, and we don't want to have to be um, unprepared for that time. So we've already read of famine, plague, and rampant murder. We also read of other products of sin. In Revelation 6, 12 and following, I'm not going to read this, uh, we, uh, we see judgment released in the sixth seal. Jesus opens the seal and there's a great earthquake. The sun has turned black like sackcloth and the whole moon turned blood red. The stars in the sky fell to earth. The heavens, that is the sky, receded like a scroll being rolled up and every island And mountain was removed from its place, the text says. I mean, guys, this is going to be terrifying for everyone. Whether you're a believer or not, this will be terrifying. But man, especially for the non-believer. It's going to feel like the earth is ripping apart and rebelling against itself. You won't have the assurance of the ground underneath your feet to give you security. Anything and everything we could possibly idolize will be ripped away during this time called the last days, the second coming of Christ. And it's going to be hard for believers too, but particularly those who don't know Christ. Finally, again for the non-believer, all social distinctions will fade amidst God's wrath. Revelation 6, verse 15. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? So who can withstand the wrath of God through this coming reigning king who's, gonna be, uh, who's, who's going to bring judgment? Jesus Christ. Who can stand? No one. These people were calling for rocks to fall on them so that they might receive a quick death. That's how horrific this time was, will, will be rather. Kings, princes, generals, rich, mighty, slave, free, no matter who and what you are, every stripe and type will hide like frightened animals. The, no outward status or worldly assurances can protect against God's wrath. We live in a day and age where what matters most is self, right? We even have a magazine called Self. And I was just listening to a teaching. It's great as a pastor when you listen to a teaching and it relates to the sermon you're about to give. I love that. But I was listening to a sermon by Rick Warren. And he was talking about, he was sharing a study of common words contained in books written about 100 years ago compared to common words written in books today. And he said, books today are filled statistically with hundreds times more words like self, feel, me, myself, I. Books written 100 years ago were filled with words like sacrifice, community, responsibility, and prayer. My point in bringing that up is not to say that somehow we are any more or less sinful today. Sin is sin, it just takes on different forms through different time periods. The point of me bringing it up is that We glorify self, and what Revelation does is it takes our eyes off of self and puts it on Jesus because he matters more than our comfort. His story matters more than our story. His glory matters more than our glory. And everything we have, family, friends, job, money, all of it is simply for the glory of God. So even if circumstances change, no one can take away your Holy Spirit, delivered God-given right as his son and daughter to bring him glory regardless of the circumstances. You keep your eyes on Jesus. You keep your eyes on this reigning king. Not one injustice will escape him. The more we get caught up in his story, the more we find ourselves because we're made by him. If we put ourselves on the throne, we'll get what sin always earns, and that's death and separation from God and isolation, no matter how self-actualized someone might be. Jesus saves us, not a strong sense of self. The Bible argues that only through Christ can we truly discover who we are and who we were meant to be and what we were meant to do. So real self-actualization can only happen through Christ. This is how heavy this time of judgment will be. I believe that chapter eight, verse one belongs chronologically with the rest of the seals that we discussed in chapter six, right? The seals are the judgments of God. And we've read about six of the seven judgments of God that were introduced in chapter six. We're not gonna go through chapter eight tonight, but I believe chapter eight belongs with chapter six chronologically. And here's what he says. When he, that is Jesus, opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. A commentary I read said it best on this verse. Heaven has been full of sound up until this point with uninterrupted praise around the throne. In the Old Testament, silence is frequently a precursor of judgment. During the final plague of the firstborn, the Israelites and their animals were commanded to remain silent. After Babylon's judgment was determined by the Lord from his heavenly temple, let all the earth be silent before him. With the opening of the last seal, the scroll is finally opened and its contents fully seen. The fury of the coming judgments has now moved even heaven to silence. All heaven will be silent. These mighty heavenly beings, these heavenly hosts who saw more glory of God than we could possibly bear in these bodies, they were silent. And they've stood in the presence of his glory. This should motivate those of you who don't know Jesus, these heavenly beings that would cause your heart to explode in your chest right now. They were silent. If you don't know him tonight, this chapter should move you to silence before God. I'm done resisting. I'm done rebelling. You are my king, and I submit to you. You can pray that prayer. A five-year-old can pray that prayer and 50-year-olds are too stubborn and prideful to pray it. The only thing standing between you and the rescue of Christ because of his cross, paying the penalty that you deserved for sin and rising from the dead that you might have new life in him, the only thing separating you from his rescue is your pride. Fall on his face now. Don't wait till this period of time, but do it now while there's still time. So now we might make a sharp right turn into the implications of God's glory described in chapters four through five for, for the believer. Uh, just so there's no, so we've talked about the implications of God's holiness described in chapters four through five for the non-believer in chapter six. Now the implications of God's holiness for the believer in chapter seven. And just so there's no confusion, Chapter 7, in my opinion, is describing two pictures given at tif- different times for the same people. And those people are God's people, believers, Christians. What I mean is that when one starts out after this, then goes on to describe the implications for God's glory on those who follow Jesus, he's taking us back to the time before the seals were opened. That is before chapter 6, before the earth was shaken, decimated, plagues were given, rampant murders, and all that. Look at 7 3. This will make sense as we hang in there with me. This will make sense. 7 3. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. So before the judgment of God comes on the earth, God will protect his people. In verses one through eight of chapter seven, God is showing us that he will mark his people who trust him and live for another kingdom. His mark will provide security in the midst of the tribulation. This is God's judgment in the last days. That's what the tribulation is, security. It will still be terrifying, but he will provide security. We see perfect numbers used like Revelation 7, four. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. 144,000, which is 12 times 12. We've got 12 tribes of Israel. If you read on there, you actually just read it before we started. So this pictures the full number of God's people, not a literal 144,000 or just the Jews. That's not what is depicted here, but the fullness of God's people, all of God's people through all that time and eternity. Um, and again, that will make sense as we go on here. So we see God's protection. As the end of the seven seals of God's judgment come to a close in Revelation 7, verse 9. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. So it's not just 144,000, right? Because you can count 144,000. See, these are all God's people. Was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. So all God's people are with God at this point before his throne. This means that the time has shifted from before the judgments of chapter 6 to after the judgments of chapter 6. So now we're talking about God's rescued people. So chapter 7 hits the pause button on God's judgment and answers the question, what will God do for his people during this time of tribulation? It gives believers confident assurance throughout all of time to know that Jesus wins, but especially in these last days. So to clarify a step further, seven, one through eight marks the ceiling of the faithful to withstand this period of God's judgment, whereas seven, chapter seven, verse nine through the end of chapter seven marks the perspective of a future triumphant church. This triumphant picture of the church says it contains a multitude no one can count from every tribe, tongue, and language, It goes on in verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Think about this. All the elders, all the heavenly beings, when you multiply them, the myriads upon myriads of angels that were described, we're looking at at least 100 million angels. It says it sounded like peals of thunder. And then all the heavenly beings, then all God's people throughout all of eternity worshiping him. So chapter seven particularly allows us to hit the pause button in our life. If you could only have one chapter to get you through suffering, I think it would be chapter 7 of Revelation. And it will be especially important for God's people who live during this time in the future, which could come at any moment, we don't know. But it's for us now as well. Because sometimes we need to be reminded of who wins, and Jesus wins, and no one can stand in his way. So tonight, maybe you need to be reminded of who wins over your addiction Or who wins in this battle that you have in your heart and in your mind to reject Jesus? You know he's calling you, but you don't want to bend your knee. And you need to know that he wins. Maybe you've suffered some kind of loss or setback or failed dream and you need to know he wins. Please come up, meet with the prayer team. We'll be sitting up here uh, when I conclude here in just a moment. Please take advantage of this moment. And remember, your pause button is chapter 7. In Jesus' name, amen.